I had to walk in that room and I had to tell the love of my life that we were broke. All I could do was get in my car and drive. I looked up in my rearview mirror. All I could see looking back at me was my $4 million life insurance policy. And my thought was pretty simple. All I got to do is turn this wheel a little to the left and all these problems go away. Welcome, everybody, to Your Financial Sobriety, a podcast that challenges conventional beliefs about money and about life. There are three relationships in life that really matter, our relationship with people, our relationship with ourselves, and our relationship with money. And they're all tied pretty closely to one another. So if you've ever struggled with any of these relationships at any point in your life, then you're definitely in the right place right now. My name is Matthew Grishman. I'm the co-founder of Gebhardt Group. We're a private wealth management firm headquartered right outside San Francisco, California. I'm joined here today by my business partner and my BFF, Jim Gebhardt. He's the guy that got this whole party started when he decided to open the doors to the firm back in 2005. Jim and I created this podcast, Your Financial Sobriety, because we really want to help a lot of people. We're on this mission now to become the most disruptive money influencers of our time. If after listening today, you're able to take one step closer to keeping your money more aligned with the people, the places, and the experiences that mean the most to you, then Jim and I got one step closer to accomplishing our mission. Thanks, Matthew. I am so excited that we're doing this. And 2005 was a long time ago, and if if I had thought back then when I was at Smith Barney, that we'd be doing a podcast today when really all I was trying to do when I set up Gebhardt Group was open up a shop where I could do financial planning my way and to help my friends and my family and neighbors get really in alignment with what their money was doing. But to think here we are 15 years later and the evolution of what we're doing in our wealth management practice has gotten to this podcast and the concept of financial sobriety, which we're going to get into a lot and what that means and what it's about is just, it's awesome. To me, I think what would help a lot of people is if we jump right in and kind of roll up our sleeves and talk about how did we get to this concept of financial sobriety? Where did that, what was the genesis of all that? Where does it come from? Yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, it. you and I have had a lot of discussion about the fact that we have wonderful clients that we get to help every day, but there's only so much time that you and I have to work one-on-one with clients. We, we both, we like to joke that we have this little Oscar Schindler complex, right? Oh my gosh, this little ring of mine here could have saved five more people. There's just so many people we come across every day that have ache in their relationship with money that we just felt compelled to try to help more people despite the limited capacity that you and I have to work one-on-one with families. Thankfully, we found this incredible medium called podcasting where we can hopefully get this message of financial sobriety out to so many more people. So is this going to be about Roth IRAs and traditional IRAs and what are 401k limits and how do I contribute? Or are we going to do, yeah, exactly. Oh, I'm sorry. Cue the, cue the snoozer. Uh, <laughs> or is this going to be something a little bit different? I think it's going to be something that's a lot different. At times, yes, we're going to get into some of these financial concepts. 
financial concepts that that are going to introduce people to ways that they can they can save their money more more effectively more efficiently but really it's about something bigger than that I, I think financial sobriety is about a way of life it's it's a way of thinking about the relationship you have with money and and how that relationship connects to the other two important relationships you have in your life, what I would say are the two most important relationships you have in your life. And that's the one you, you have with the person just kind of looking back at you at the mirror. And then the relationship you have with all the other people that you have in your life. It seems to me that at least what I've learned is that when you get those first two relationships right, the one you have with the person staring back at you in the mirror and the one you have with your people, that the relationship with money tends to get a bit simpler. It tends to get a little less complex. So yes, we're going to get into some of those concepts, but I think this podcast ultimately is going to be so much more. I can't wait. I can't wait to see where this goes. And the whole concept behind it is, like you're saying, is to help people have their money in alignment with the things that are most important to them, the people that are most important to them, right? We, we in our private practice we turn that into a concept called the clarity compass where the money is now supporting the principles that are the most important to the individual. We live in a time and place. I mean, we're we're recording this very podcast where there's really not a lot of financial sobriety on the planet, let alone in this country, let alone at the individual level. No. Well, Uh, we're we're also recording this the day after Christmas. (laughs) Right. Which is somewhat intentional on our part because we know full well that this is when any kind of financial sobriety goes out the window. Well, before before we uh, we get any deeper into concepts of financial sobriety, I, I think it makes sense just for us to have a little conversation about where you and I came from. Where, where did this conversation actually start? How did we get to a place where financial sobriety became something that we're willing to go out and tell the world about? So well, I, I think it'd be great if you'd share with us that faithful day in my conference room on Happy Valley Road in Lafayette, California. Well, that was a long time ago, my friend. Uh, and that was that was quite a day. I, I would say I, I'm going to go back for a minute even further than that. All right. Because what really instigated that conversation of me coming to see you to get help really started back when I was 16 years old. I mean, that's that's really what, what started all of this because when I was 16 years old, there were only three things in this world I ever wanted. I wanted Amy, right? This, this woman, this girl that I had met who just her smile and her green eyes just completely knocked me on my ass. I mean, this, this was the love of my life from the minute I saw her and I, I knew I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her. The second thing I wanted was money. I had this job at 16 years old, washing dishes every day after school at this sandwich shop in Schenectady, New York called Dick Subs. You were 16. I was 16. Okay. I got my first paycheck. I will never forget it. It was 48 bucks. I made $3.20 an hour, and that first paycheck, when it touched my hands, oh, it was awesome. But my first thought was, this has got to be more. I want this thing to be 48,000 bucks. Because then if I have all this money, I could buy Amy anything I wanted, right? I could take care of sure. her. And then that leads to the third thing I ever wanted, which was to be her hero, right? If I, could, if I could go out and make all this money and I could have this girl on my arm, then I could look in the mirror and feel really good about myself because I'm her hero. 
And, and that's all I ever wanted were those three things. Well, fast forward a whole bunch of years later, and by 33 years old, I did it. I had it. I had these three things. Amy and I were standing in the house that day. This was in the summer of 2005. I was in the bathroom just kind of admiring myself in the mirror. I had my nice brand new Hickey Freeman suit oh, on. Yeah. Oh, I was, yeah. I was looking down my wrist at this gorgeous new two-tone Rolex that I had on my wrist. It was awesome. I was getting ready. I was waiting for a driver to come pick me up to take me to the airport. I had been invited to speak in front of a 1,000 financial advisors at the San Diego Convention Center. So I was working for one of the largest insurance companies in North America, and I was going to be their keynote speaker making the biggest performance of my career. That sounds like a hero to me. Oh, I was, I was feeling really good about myself. Amy was in the bedroom behind me. Hey, Matthew, she was yelling in at me. Did you take some cash out? Did you remember to do that for me? I want to take the kids to Sunsplash while you're gone for the weekend. Oh, I totally forgot to do that. I mean, I was all self-absorbed thinking about right. my, my upcoming couple of days. Right. Couldn't think about getting money out for, for Amy. Honey, you're just going to have to go to the ATM on the way to Sunsplash and, and take a couple of bucks out. Well, could you check for me and see which account for crying out loud? Could you at least do that for me? Now, this was pre-iPhone days, so, of course, I had to get the laptop out. Sure, you can't just hop on the app and check it. Right. I, I actually had to boot up my laptop, and I go online. Wait, what? This can't be right. There's no money in the savings account? Wait a minute. The checking account is overdrawn by $210? How's that possible? Honey, there's a, there's a mistake. The bank screwed up. Something's going on with our accounts. I'll take care of it when I get back. Just take a little cash advance on one of the credit cards. You'll be fine. We'll deal with this when I get back. Well, which credit card? Hang on. I'll look for you. So let me go online again here. Okay, Chase Visa. Whoa, maxed out. Eesh. Okay, second Visa card or Wells Fargo Visa. Ooh, maxed out. Huh, okay. Now now I'm... You're starting to feel it. Yeah, I'm starting to feel it. I'm, I'm right. kind of almost even saying a little prayer at this point. Right. That when I look at my Cap 1 Visa, we've got at least a little room, but no, maxed out. Holy shit. So I had a lot of self-talk going on at this point because I just I felt the blood rushing into my head. It was it was really not a good moment, but I knew what I had to do. I had to walk in that room and I had to tell the love of my life that we were broke. That we had no purchasing power. Even though $50,000 hit this bank account a week and a half before, one of the biggest paychecks I'd ever had. And here we were completely broke. Let me tell you, brother, the look in her eyes when I said those words to her, honey, we're broke. Her hands just started trembling. I didn't know what else to do. My head started spinning. All I could do was get in my car and drive. So I started heading probably with about a half a tank of gas left. Here I've got no purchasing power, so I'm not even thinking that I'm not yeah, going to have a tank of yeah, gas. Left. I've got to have a tank of gas. And I start heading uh, north from where I lived up Highway 65, which is this long, straight two lane highway that just goes on for days. I looked up in my rearview mirror and I just said to myself over and over, You piece of garbage. What did you do? Look who you hurt. 
all I could see looking back at me was my $4 million life insurance policy. And the thoughts were hitting me that, you know, maybe Amy and the boys would just be better with that than they would be with me. When my eyes kind of came down from the rearview mirror and I started looking out the windshield again, I saw probably about a mile up the road this huge Mack truck coming right at me. And my thought was pretty simple. All I got to do is turn this wheel a little to the left and all these problems go away. Wow. Well, that game plan didn't work out too well, obviously, because here, here we are. Here we are. And thankfully it didn't. But somehow so I So what did, did you do? I somehow got my way home. I, I don't remember how long I drove around for, but it was a while and it was dark by the time I got home. And I walked up my steep driveway and up the front stairs into the house and, and there they were. There they were, obviously waiting for me. Amy was sitting on a, on a chair in our family room. Miles at the time was five years old and he was kind of nestled in her right arm and Lucas was wedged right between her legs with his little stuffed puppy that he still has on his bed to this day. We yelled, we cried. We did this all right in front of the kids, and eventually we put the boys to bed, and, and we were able to sit down and, and come up with some kind of plan, a sort of kind of plan. Thank God for this woman, Jim, because she just she looked at me and said, okay, no more spending. It's going to be ramen noodles and cans of soup for the next whatever few Whatever we weeks. got in the house. Yeah, whatever we got in the house, this is, this is what we're going to live on, and we're going to figure this out. You know, days went by, and every morning I would get up, I'd get into my bathroom, I'd brush my teeth, and I'd look in the mirror, and all I could see looking back at me was that four million bucks of life insurance. I was hopeless, man. I was hopeless. Wow. That feeling, I mean, if you, if, if you, had you ever felt that before? No, never. I was a rock star. Are you kidding me? Right. So, I mean, that, that's, that's a feeling unlike any other. It's a feeling unlike any other because there was nobody I felt like I could even talk to. Because you're a rock star. I was at the top of the industry on the lecture circuit teaching other financial advisors how to do the best possible work they could do for clients and helping them achieve retirement security. And here I was completely broke. You couldn't check into the hotel. You couldn't get a taxi from the airport. None of, I mean, you, you couldn't go to the event. Nothing. There was, there was nothing I could do. But, you know, that was right before I met you. And, and something inside me said you should call Jim. I mean, I don't know what it was, but the first time I met you, I had just met you a few weeks before right, that. Yeah. And and the first time I met you, there there was something about you that even though I had just met you, it felt like I had known you my whole life. It was weird. It was it was unlike any meet I had ever had with another dude. You made me feel comfortable. And I don't know if you remember, but that's when I picked up the phone and I just I, I didn't get into specifics. I most certainly do. But I said, "Hey Jim, can I, I got. Can I, I come see you? Yeah, I got a problem. Can I come see you? Absolutely. And I had no idea what that problem was. No, I I had no clue because, like you said, we just met. You're a wholesaler, so I'm I'm used to wholesalers calling on me to you know, sell me product of some kind. And here you are, more out of what felt like a personal problem. Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't know how I got down to you because at that point. There were probably fumes left in my gas tank. Uh, I think you might have lent me. It's 20. all it's all downhill. Yeah, you, I think you lent me twenty bucks to fill up my gas tank to get back home that day. There we go. Um, but when I came to you, maybe my mom will hear that one. 
she will be very she'll be very proud of her boy for exactly. being so generous. But man, I, I remember that first conversation we had when I told you that story. You know, being uh, being my fine Catholic friend that you were, I, I kind of half expected you to turn your collar around and start wagging your finger at me. But it's not what you did. You just you listened. You listened. You took it in, and I felt that you were, like, breathing it in and really feeling what I was feeling. And it was unlike anything I had ever experienced with another man before. It was unbelievable. Or a financial advisor. Or a financial advisor, for that matter. And, and at that point in my life, I had met somewhere around 10,000 financial advisors just in the course of doing what I did for a living for the last 15 years. But yet I experienced something really, really unique with you that day. It was, for the first time, something that gave me hope. And I don't know if you remember what you said to me. You said something really profound to me that day. Uh-oh. Here comes the pause. You said to me, you know, you almost got this right. You just got it a little backwards. But what I want you to know is that none of this happened to you. It happened for you. Wait, what? What? I mean, this is what's going on in my head. I'm yeah, like, I remember. Say, I, say that walked, again? I walked, uh, my office was on the second floor. We walked down to your car that was parked in front, and we had this conversation standing out in, in front of your car. I remember the look in your eye was a little bit like deer in the headlights almost. Like, what? What? What did he say? How does that, what, what am I supposed to do with that? Yeah. Yeah, it was, it, it blew my mind. And and what it did was it, it kind of gave me some hope that I could actually change my behavior. I, I, I think there was, there was always this thought, this, all, this, this, this thought deep down that I knew something was wrong. I mean, I knew we had been spending money like crazy. I mean, almost like it grew on a tree in my backyard and we were just picking it and using it at will, knowing that there'd be a fresh crop. So I knew, I knew deep down something was wrong, but I never really had the courage to face any of it and try to make any changes. And it was then that you started suggesting some different behaviors. You had suggested to me that if we think about what it is that really matters most to you and Amy in life, and we think about how you guys are using your money relative to those things that really mean the most to you in life, I bet you're going to see that you're putting a lot of money towards stuff that really doesn't mean jack squat to you guys. Yeah, but for a little bit of fun, why don't, I mean, tell us a couple of uh, anecdotes of how you guys would blow money on a random Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday with, you know, just not a care in the world. Well, first, any time we flew anywhere, there was no way you'd catch me sitting in the back of the bus. Right. I mean, we had to sit up front because that's how the civilized world traveled. One of our favorite things to do was when they opened up a new Ruth's Chris here in Roseville, we loved to go sit at the bar and have date night. And we would order these really expensive bottles of wine. And, you know, because I'm the big shot and I'm the big star, I'd pick those big bottles of wine up and drink them like they were cans of Coors Light. And then, of course, I'd order drinks for everybody sitting at the bar. I mean, we just, we wanted to be loved. I wanted to be loved. I wanted to be recognized as being the, the man in the bar that night. There was no way I would ever let you come out to eat with me without me putting my credit card down, whether I had the money or not. It was just the way I lived. Right. It was what drove me. I had this relentless pursuit of money from the time I was 16 years old because I knew that if I made tons of money, I could take care of my people. 
And if I took care of my people, and I mean all my people, my sure. closest people, yeah, yeah, yeah. my people that I would have just met for the first time sitting in the bar that night, all my people, if I could take care of them, then I could go home that night, look in the mirror, and feel really damn good about the dude looking back at me. Only the exact opposite happened. That relentless chase for money, that relentless chase for recognition wound up really damaging most of the important relationships in my life. I mean, what that Damn did Damn near to, costs you all those relationships. Everything. Not just the money, but all the relationships. My wife, my children. Right. My parents, my closest friends. Almost lost your job. Almost lost my job. Yep. But yet, what I learned was going through that process with you from 2005 till the time you tapped me on the shoulder and actually asked me to join you at Gebhardt Group was that those three things I was after, the money, the recognition of being my people's hero, right, taking care of my people, and then ultimately feeling good about myself, I just I had them a little backwards. And, and this was something that you had helped me with when you introduced me to Jim Kelly. Mm -hmm. uh, Jim Kelly's not with us anymore, but man, was he helpful in my life back then because he was the person that for the first time looked at me and said, hey, Matthew, when are you going to start telling the truth to the world? What, what, did you, what did you just ask me? Right? I hung up the phone on him the first time we had ever talked. But when well, he, It wasn't quite that civilized for our friends listening today, but... You, yeah, she hung up on him. Yeah, I slammed, I slammed the phone in the face. and I, I slammed the phone in the face, but then immediately felt bad about that and picked up the phone and called him back and asked him, what, what do you mean by that? And what he told me was, you know, Matthew, there's this beautiful, flawed human being named Matthew Grishman that the world needs to get to know, and you've been hiding behind this mask your whole life. When are you going to take it off? And what that, what that triggered was a process of learning how to forgive myself and get better with myself and actually learn how to have some unconditional love for the dude in the mirror. Because once I developed that relationship with myself and felt really good about who he was, I was able to be proud of him despite his past. I was able to believe in him despite the uncertainty of his future and really look at him in the mirror with all his warts and imperfections and be okay with him for the first time because of the work I did with Jim. Well, what was beautiful about that was what it allowed me to give to my people. And what I realized was, was that my people didn't need my money. They needed me. Exactly. They needed the real me. And once I was able to do those first two things and really heal those two relationships, then you and I got to work on the money part. And man, when we talk about austerity diets, those things are normally pretty hard. But when you get really clear on what's important to you, and you have a good, healthy relationship with yourself and your close people, then that whole money piece became a lot simpler. So much so that it was by 2011, it was just six years, that Amy and I were completely able to write the ship based on some of the things that we're going to get to teach people on this podcast, where we were at a point of, of financial independence, where I could walk away from this corporate career of being on the lecture circuit and just telling other people what they need to do and, and really uh, kind of repurpose my career to kind of stand shoulder to shoulder with you, my best friend in the whole wide world, doing for other people what you helped do for me. And I'm not even sure you were completely aware at the time of what you did for me. No, I, I probably wasn't. And, you know, six years is 
a long time in some regards, right? I mean, that's 72 equal payments in a uh, car lease or a boat lease or a whatever you want to lease. But you guys did it. That's the, I mean, that's that's part of the hero's journey in this story is the fact that you rolled up your sleeves, you completely transformed your relationship with how you spent money, what what the what the money was actually for, wasn't necessarily to show off and buy trinkets and jewels and cars and all kinds of cool, sexy stuff. And I remember you telling me stories about how you would you would be thrilled just to go to a, a day game at Rayleigh Field, get cheap tickets and enjoy the afternoon and have a marvelous experience for probably less than 50 bucks for your family. Oh, absolutely. We, we used to love the idea of going to like a San Francisco Giants game and getting really ridiculously expensive seats just so that we could tell the whole world that we sat up close and we're at a big league park. And yes, I enjoyed the time with my boys and my family, but what really rocked my world was the ability that I got to show the whole world where we sat at these games. Too bad we didn't have Facebook back then. <laughs> exactly. And and to your point, what I, what I realized about that experience with my family is that what I really, really cherished about it was that time with my boys. And here we've got this lovely AAA ballpark right here in town that for a fraction of the price, we could go get that same enjoyment of a ball game together, dads and sons. Yeah, on a beautiful afternoon in Northern California. Yeah, for 20 bucks a seat. Right. And we didn't need all the fancy fanfare of going into San Francisco and paying all that money for, for the big show. My favorite, though, was my new car that I bought. I was just going to say, when you, when you got rid of the European sedan. Yeah, when the European sedan needed a new timing belt in 2006, and that was going to run us about $6,000 to replace, we decided it was time to replace the car. Most of my colleagues that did what I did in those days would go out and lease really expensive German automobiles. I was driving around the Roseville Auto Mall that day, and I was passing by an Infinity dealership, and I saw the ugliest green Ford Crown Victoria sitting on their lot, and something just hit me. That's my next car. I saw a big sticker in the window that said $12,500 for a 2006 Ford Crown Victoria. I walked in the front door. I found the manager. I said, I'll write you a check for eleven grand to take that eyesore off your lot today. One of the best things I've ever purchased because I drove the crap out of that car. Now, what was funny was I'd go visit clients after that. I'd go see other financial advisors who were my clients at the time, and they used to just tease me and make fun of me. What, what's the matter, Matt? They're not paying you anymore? Right. I remember you telling me stories about yeah. that. Well, because and- the expectation, what's the expectation right. of a successful wholesaler in the financial services industry. Brand new BMW. You're in a European luxury sedan. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I roll up in this uh, fake-looking police cruiser, and I can think of one conversation in El Dorado Hills in particular where I got a look, and the comment was, what's the matter? Are you you struggling this year? And with a big old shit-eating grin on my face, I said, no, Kevin. I'm having the best income year of my life. My money's just going in the bank. It's not going into a depreciating asset like some fancy car. So by 2011, you had you had accomplished what money-wise in terms of what you were what you were looking to do. By 2011, I went from being completely broke to a point where I had just over 1.6 million dollars saved between retirement accounts and bank accounts. Say that again. In six years, I was able to go from zero to just over $1.5 million saved. You didn't win the lottery. I didn't win the lottery. Nobody died. Uh, nobody died that I knew of. So that was with brick by brick, step by step, socking it away somewhere. 
showing up and doing my job every day to the best of my ability, making sure that I spent less than I, than I made every month and that we had a disciplined savings plan of putting money in certain what we what we're going to teach our listeners about these different barrels of money that I was able to save over time so that by the time 2011 rolled around, Amy and I could take that chance of walking away from a very secure job with benefits and company paid life insurance to follow our passions and go out and have a big impact on the world working side by side with you. So leave corporate America. Leave corporate America. And the cushy, you know, everything that comes with that. Hang it up. Walk out the door and do do what next? I mean, what? That was the big question. I, I knew I wanted to do something on my own, and I knew I wanted to have an impact on the world. But you remember the very first day that I was at Gebhardt Group and we opened up the office in Roseville? I had absolutely nothing to do. I didn't know who to call. I didn't know what it meant to be a financial advisor it, for myself. I had been I had been studying financial advisors for 15 years. Sure, you'd sat with 10,000 of them. Exactly. And I remember picking up the phone and calling you Mm -hmm. and saying, hey, dude, would you please give me something to do because I'm bored and I feel like I'm wasting company money right now by just sitting here doing nothing. And And what did you tell me to do? And my famous words at that time were, go write. (laughs) Exactly. Go write something. Write about what? Go write anything, whatever comes to mind. Yeah. Because let's face it. I mean, you have an incredible story and I don't think it really hit you back then to go specifically write your story. No, I wasn't ready to tell it to the world. You you did a beautiful job sending me articles. And generally those articles would piss me off enough to write something about them. I can be subtle like that. I can be <laughs> subtle like a sledgehammer. Well, and then once we brought Allison onto the team, she made it a daily habit to send me something to write about. And I just started collecting these little kind of blog posts that I was putting up on LinkedIn, on Facebook. We put a couple up on the website. Generally, uh, there were articles that had to do with money, but they were articles that challenged the headlines of what we would see in the Wall Street Journal in Investor's Business Daily. I mean, one of my favorite articles was uh, Allison forwarded me this article about a CEO of a major investment bank that we'll leave nameless for the purpose of this conversation. Right, because we, we like being alive. Right, we like being alive. And, and this big-time CEO of this big bank was being lauded in the Wall Street Journal as being the smartest investor of the year because he had just purchased in July of that year 700,000 shares of his own company's stock. And 62 days later, the company announced a $1 billion share buyback of their own stock. What a genius he was to make that trade. And, of course, you guys send me that article, and I'm yeah, immediately screaming. You got a little that day. What a, that's insider trading. Right. Are you kidding me? Right. And I just started pounding on the keyboard. So it was a lot of articles like that. It was, it was articles that challenged the conventional beliefs of Wall Street and the things that you and I were always raised to, to teach people. And what then, I loved about it was that it, it, got your, it got your writing muscle going. And the more you did it, number one, the more you wanted to keep writing, which eventually led to writing your story and writing the book. I don't know, I don't know what did it. But one day, I decided to write an article called Confessions of a Recovering Wholesaler. This came after a conversation I had with my dad. We were on vacation. My parents are incredibly generous. They, they take us away uh, once a year so that we can kind of celebrate what it means to be Grishman. Uh, my mom and my dad and my brother and his family, Amy, myself, our kids, we, we go away to somewhere really beautiful, really secluded where we can just be together. 
My dad and I were sitting there in the concierge lounge of our hotel, and I leaned into him, and I said, Dad, I think I need to start telling people the truth. I remember that. He was scared for me. He said, oh, you be really careful with that, because who's going to want to hire a financial advisor that was a financial mess in his own life? And there was something about that that just was the validation that I needed to actually go out and do it. I don't know why I challenged my dad's wisdom on that, but it seems to have worked out well because the very first friend I actually told the truth to wound up becoming a client of ours who transferred over $5 million of his assets to right, us, right. knowing that I was a complete and utter financial failure. Right. And his reason for doing it was because it was the first time he had met an advisor who was willing to be real with him. Well, real is attractive. Yes. And it's not just in our profession, but in the real world. Yes. With all the puffery and fakery and, you know, everything's pretty, but behind the Wizard of Oz, it's a disaster. Yes. I am I am constantly attracted to real. That situation with that client, it was just a series of dominoes after that because that was almost like a little bit of crack cocaine to give you the confidence to then be even more real and even more real to the point that one day we were shooting some uh, marketing videos in uh, outside of Scottsdale in a nice little studio that with, with this group that we were working with, and we had some blank time. And I suggested, why don't, why don't you stand in front of the camera and tell your story? Yeah, that was the first time. That was the first time that I was telling it where a wide audience might actually hear it one day. That was scary. Yeah, you, you were, you know, you were, you were visibly uncomfortable at the thought of permanently putting down tracks on your reckless behavior with money and what it almost did and all these cool things. Not cool things, but the, the subsequent, you know. Yeah, the pain. Recovery. That, yeah. The, the recovery's been cool. Yeah. I can't wait for our listeners to hear more about your story, more about financial sobriety, how it can help them, how it can help the ones that they love. Where, how do you want to wrap us up today? Well, yeah, let, let's do this because I, I think there's more to tell here as far as the overview of what we're going to accomplish in your financial sobriety as a podcast. And what I'd like listeners to, to take from this first episode is what we're really going to do in the next episode is kind of dive into the different modules of this kind of curriculum, this course that we've developed called Your Financial Sobriety. What it really required was us to go back to that time you and I first sat down and, and really look at what was going on in not just the meeting that you and I had together, but I then started watching you in other meetings with clients. You were very gracious in letting me shadow you and, and, and watch what was going on with other clients. And I was amazed at how within a 45 to 50-minute meeting, people were pushing their stuff across the table to you going, hey, could you, can you just like take care of this all for me? And I was blind to it because it just happened. It just was like a fish in water. Yeah, this, you were, this is always what happened. You were in your own biosphere. You didn't have the perspective that I had. I had been calling on financial advisors for 15 years and I had seen how others were doing it. And I met some really good advisors, but I had never seen the kind of trust that was created at lightning fast speed as I did with you. So going through and really analyzing that and figuring out how this whole financial sobriety, this way of living, this this way of kind of commingling these three relationships in my life that you helped me with, my relationship with myself, my relationship with my people, and then my relationship with money, and how the interplay of those three relationships are so delicate that when just one falls out of whack a little bit, it can completely screw up the other relationships. 
that was a really, really cool journey that you and I went on these last several years, kind of exploring that and putting this curriculum together. So in our next episode, what we're going to do is kind of take people from a very high-level overview of what that curriculum is going to look like so they know what they can expect from week to week as these episodes come out. Make sense? Totally. Yeah, there's just a wee bit of history to uh, to unpack uh, so that our listeners can can be impacted by it. Right. That's our whole that's our whole goal with this with this podcast is to have more impact, more leverage, more reach than we can have sitting one on one in your conference room or mine. Absolutely. So let's call this a wrap for our first episode of Your Financial Sobriety. And to our listeners today, thank you so much. If you like what you heard, leave us a review and and be sure to subscribe to upcoming uh, podcast episodes. And also check out our website, yourfinancialsobriety.com for more information. Thanks again, everybody, for listening today. Here to help you find more clarity, confidence, and capability along your journey into financial sobriety. I'm Matthew Grishman. And Jim Gebhardt. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, but until then, be intentional with your money. Jim Gebhardt is a registered representative of and securities offered through Brokers International Financial Services, LLC, member SIPC. Jim Gebhardt and Matthew Grishman are investment advisor representatives of Gebhardt Group Incorporated, a registered investment advisor. Brokers International Financial Services, LLC, and Gebhardt Group Incorporated are not affiliated. The opinions in this podcast are for informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or investment recommendations. To determine which investments or financial advice may be appropriate for you, consult a financial advisor prior to investing. Any reference to market performance is based on historical information and there is no expressed or implied guarantee of future performance.